Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to This Kiss, a chart-topping single for Faith Hill written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Beth Nielsen Chapman. In addition to writing more than a half dozen number one singles for other artists, she is a highly regarded artist in her own right. Her most recent album is Hearts of Glass. In part three of this episode, we'll dig into the ways Beth's profound experiences of both joy and loss have shaped her creativity. But first, in part one, we'll tell you how you can get your hands on an autographed copy of Beth's new album, Hearts of Glass. And in part two of the show, we're going to look at some cover songs that have become better known than their originals. Part one. Well, we have a giveaway today that uh, is tied to our Patreon page, just like the last giveaway we did was tied yeah. to our Patreon page. We said the next five uh, people that sign up as patrons would get a copy of Billy Ed Wheeler's book, Hotter Than a Pepper Sprout. Yep, that's right. So we want to uh, thank the uh, the first five lucky signups, which is Jonathan Richardson, Mark D. Sanders, by the way, a noted songwriter in his own right. We've got an episode with him coming up very soon. Uh, Roselle and I can see her, Charlotte Allen. And Phil and Pam Morgan. So all of you, uh, be on the lookout for a message from us, and we'll get your contact info and get that book to you. So we want to do the same kind of thing here with the Beth Nielsen Chapman episode. We have two autographed copies of her brand new CD, Hearts of Glass, that we'd like to give away to the next two people that sign up for our Patreon page. And if you don't know, our Patreon page is a place where you can simply go and sign up to be a supporter of what we do here at Songcraft. We always like to say the show is free, but if you want to go a little deeper, kind of like the public radio model and help support the work that we're doing here of preserving and presenting these conversations, then we certainly appreciate that. And you can find us at patreon.com slash Songcraft show. So please go check that out. And if it uh, looks like something you'd like to do, go ahead and sign up. And the next two of you that do, we'll get that Beth Nielsen Chapman signed CD. Part two. Well, I wanted to have another conversation today that has nothing to do with our guest, <laughs> um, but just the kind of things that you and I both think about and will sometimes, you know, over lunch wax eloquent on these type of topics. And uh, I wanted to talk about cover songs. Alienating our wives and all our other friends who <laughs> exactly. have no interest in hearing us talk ad nauseum about these ridiculous uh, things. This is why I need you in my life. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I want to talk about cover songs. I want to talk in particular about cover songs that have become so famous and so well-known that they've actually made people forget that there were original versions before them. There are some cover songs that, that loom so large in the public consciousness that they've almost sort of eclipsed the fact that someone recorded this before. Right. So um, I wanted to throw out you know, a few of mine okay. and see uh, you know, kind of what you think. And we, you know, we haven't consulted on this, so uh, I've got a few extra in case you take one of mine. Or if, um, you, if you take one of mine, I am also prepared. Well, good. Um, I so could I, go all day, man. <laughs> Just back and forth. I'm not giving up. I'm sure everyone listening wishes we would go all day on this very topic. 
Um, I, I'm not going to start with what I think uh, is is one of the the main ones. I want to kind of save some great ones um, for the end. So I'm going to talk about one that that I don't think a lot of people know um, is is a cover song, and it's "Red Red Wine" by UB40. Hmm. And one of the telltale ways to UB40 know that... recorded that. Yeah. Well, one of the telltale ways that that you can know a song is a cover is if UB40 recorded it. (laughs) Um, So that song was actually originally written and recorded by Neil Diamond. Yeah. Yeah. And not a lot of people know it, and it's got a really different vibe in Neil's version. I actually prefer it a a thousand percent to the UB40 version, and I'm quite certain we'll never talk to them because we're talking to songwriters here. So I'm not worried about alienating them. Uh, But we'd love to talk to Neil. I'd love to talk to Neil. So, so I'll Neil, do anything I can if, to if talk about listening. how great you are. Yeah. <laughs> so Red Red Wine. Check check out Neil's version. Um, okay, here's one for you. Without You, which was a big hit for Harry Nilsson. Oh, yeah. Harry Nilsson was a great songwriter uh, in his own right, so people probably thought that he wrote that song. And if you don't know what in the world I'm talking about, Mariah Carey also had a hit with the exact be. same song. So Mariah Carey was was not covering a Harry Nilsson song. She was covering a Badfinger song, which is right. what Harry Nilsson was also covering. So Badfinger was a great British band in the, I guess, very early 70s, yeah. maybe started in the Immediately post-Beatles. Yeah, a lot of people thought it was the Beatles. Yeah, uh, They thought Paul McCartney was in the band. But uh, um, Without You, fantastic uh, Badfinger rock ballad and made much more famous by Nilsson for uh, for a particular generation and by Mariah Carey for another generation but uh, got to go back to Badfinger if you want yep. to, to get to the uh, to the heart of the song all right I'm, I'm gonna take one of the big ones blinded by the light uh, yes. which most people know uh, as a Manfred Mann song yeah uh, not everybody knows that Manfred Mann is also the same artist that did Doo Diddy. Which is weird. It's super weird that Blinded by the Light and Doo Diddy came from the same artist. But Blinded by the Light is originally a Bruce Springsteen song. Yes, sir. And uh, if you sing it and just don't open your teeth, you can hear that it's a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> Blinded by the Light. If you just yeah. do that, then, yeah. then you'll then get... You, then you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Also probably one of the uh, uh, the most misheard lyrics of all time, but we won't get into that. Yeah, I wasn't going to go there. Um, all right, well, I'm going to go uh, with a 80s classic, Manic Monday mm. by the Bangles. Yeah. Now, some people know that Prince wrote that song. The, the Bangles did not write it. But it was actually recorded by Apollonia 6, which was one of Prince's bands that he produced and managed, before the Bangles did it. So uh, not only was it not written by the Bangles, it wasn't even first recorded by the Bangles. Wow. Well... Do you want me to leave you the big one? I, there, there's one. I don't know what, what you're thinking, so... There's one that this all points to. So Come you, on. You, you do what you do you, and I will just... I will adapt. All right. I'm going to take what I think is the, the biggest one of all time. Okay. I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Oh, at first I thought you were declaring something. That was the song title. That, <laughs> I Will Always Love You, probably. <laughs> no, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston is a Dolly Parton song. Yes. Written and recorded by Dolly Parton, and and it was a hit for Dolly. Yeah. Uh, And a song that actually a little-known artist named Elvis Presley wanted to record in Mm. the 70s, um, but Dolly would not give up any of her publishing on the song. Interesting. And uh, I always thought that was really interesting because that that seems like, oh, man, what what a bad decision, Dolly. You know, you could have had such a great cover version on Elvis with that song. You could have made so much money. 
But if Elvis had recorded it, I don't think it ever would have made its way to Whitney's hands. Yeah, I and, think you're and, right. and Whitney did uh, probably the the ultimate version of that song. Yeah. I actually prefer the Dolly version, I have to uh, I have to say, but uh, you know, I'm a big Dolly fan. Yeah. She wrote it about uh, parting ways with Porter Wagner, who was her singing mm-hmm. partner. Uh, and and some of you probably know who Porter Wagner is. He was probably the most stereotypical looking country artist of all time <laughs> with his giant rhinestone suits and uh so it's funny to me to imagine Whitney Houston is actually singing about Porter Wagner. She may have been though. <laughs> um all right, I'm going to go with a similar kind of uh, thing of a country artist or country songwriter writing a song that becomes more well-known in a pop version, and that is uh, Me and Bobby McGee, mm. which was a huge hit for Janis Joplin. Was a great one. But was uh, written by Chris Christopherson, who, um, like Dolly, was a writer for Combine Music, which was the publishing arm of Monument Records in Nashville. So mm. somebody there obviously knew something about signing uh, country songwriters that had potential to have enormous pop success, too. Well, for a moment, I thought we were doing three, and I threw out my biggest one in the middle. Uh, (laughs) But I I just remember we're doing five, So, but I've got this list here, so I'm going to keep going. Do it. Um, If You Don't Know Me By Now, which was a song that uh, came to to prominence with a Simply Red version. Yes. That I think most... Early 90s? Late 80s? Early 90s? I think 80s. That was 80s. That was originally a song by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes in the late 60s. Um, Written by the great Gamble and Huff. Who we'd love to talk to. Yeah, we'll put that out there too. So Neil Diamond, if you're listening and you run into (laughs) Gamble and Huff, tell them we'd love to talk to them too. (laughs) Um, So, you know, Simply Red actually did a great version of that song. I have have nothing, you know, nothing negative to say about that, except to say that check out the Harold Melvin version too, because that's kind of the definitive version. Yeah, yeah, and and the better version, I'll say it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. So um, I think uh, I've already I've already tapped into the Prince thing. So I'm gonna skip over "Nothing Compares to You," which was you know uh, made more famous by Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, that's my way of sliding it in there without commenting. You always on it. do. That. I always do that because I can't decide. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm gonna go with uh, with with one that um, maybe people know this by now. I, I guess people do, but. You know, Crazy was a huge hit for Patsy Cline, mm-hmm. and that was a cover of a song that Willie Nelson actually wrote. Yep. And uh, I think now a lot of people know that Willie wrote that one, but at, at one time, uh, it was just considered a big Patsy Cline hit. But that was, uh, again, a, a situation where the cover eclipsed the original. That's crazy. Oh, I see what yeah, you did there. Well, you know what? I, it, it actually is probably good that I got Whitney Houston out of the way, because I can close with one that's near and dear to my heart. You know, my, my guy, uh, Elvis Presley, and one of his first big hits, Hound Dog, was, and if you're a Songcraft listener, you know this, by the way, <laughs> uh, but it was a cover of a Big Mama Thornton recording, uh, a song written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, um, but Elvis was not the original version. Yeah, and Mike Stoller told us all about how that unfolded on that uh, on the episode when we got a chance to talk with him, which is probably one of my, my favorites of our, of our past guests. Um so great story. Well, you uh, you took a lot of the good ones. I did. But there's one that I was certain you were going to take, and you didn't. So I'm going to take it for myself to close this out. All right. And that is that the fantastic record of Aretha Franklin's Respect well done. has eclipsed the original version by Otis Redding, yeah. who wrote the song and did the original uh, record of it. And Otis's record is great. Yeah. It's a really cool record. 
Um, the Aretha version adds the R E S P E C T part, which was not in the in right. the Otis. It's probably the most famous part it's of the, the song. Hook. Yeah, it's kind of the hook. Um, so I gotta say, I love Otis Redding. I love his record of that. And if I had never heard any other version, I would have been like, "This is unbeatable. No yeah. one could do better than this." But Aretha did. She 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 knocked it out. You know what's really cool about it is that song was originally written kind of like a man coming home from work, getting his respect. And Aretha recorded it and turned it into a feminist anthem. Yeah. And it was so timely. Uh, and it just it turned the meaning of the song on its head yeah. in such a cool way. That's what's interesting about these songs is depending on who's interpreting them, the exact same song can kind of take on a different different meaning and tone. Yep. Part three. Singer-songwriter Beth Nielsen Chapman is best known for co-writing This Kiss, a number one country hit and top ten pop hit for Faith Hill that earned a CMA Song of the Year award. Other chart-topping hits from her catalog include Tanya Tucker's Strong Enough to Bend, Willie Nelson's Nothing I Can Do About It Now, Lori Morgan's Five Minutes, Martina McBride's Happy Girl, and Alabama's Here We Are, which she co-wrote with Vince Gill. As an artist, Chapman has released a dozen albums and placed eight singles on Billboard's adult contemporary charts, including Walk My Way, All I Have, and I Keep Coming Back to You. After her husband lost his battle with cancer, Beth worked through her grief by digging into an emotionally rich body of songs that includes Sand and Water, a song that was later covered by Elton John on his 1987 world tour. The long list of artists who've recorded Beth's material includes Neil Diamond, Michael McDonald, Emmylou Harris, Bonnie Raitt, Roberta Flack, Bette Midler, Keb Moe, Trisha Yearwood, Waylon Jennings, The Indigo Girls, Don Williams, Mary Chapin Carpenter, and Jim Brickman, who scored a number one adult contemporary hit with her song, Simple Things. The two-time Grammy nominee has been honored by the Alabama Music Hall of Fame and was the recipient of the Distinguished Artist Award from the Alabama State Council on the Arts in 2009. She was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2016. Beth, welcome to Songcraft. Great to be here. Now, you're a songwriter who has been uh, successful working behind the scenes, writing for other artists, as well as releasing about a dozen albums of your own, um, and kind of maintaining that balance of being both artist and behind the scenes songwriter, which is really cool. Um, I know you've produced quite a few of your own projects in recent years, but uh, your latest, Hearts of Glass, um, you took the step of handing over the reins to Sam Ashworth. Yeah. Um, talk about entrusting your creativity to another person who's going to kind of help you, you know, realize your vision or maybe even bring something different to your vision. Well, first off, he did a fantastic job, so I'm really glad I did that. And, uh, you know, I've always been a bit of a control freak in nature anyway. And through the course of my amazingly now long career, um, you know, starting in 1980, I went into the studio with Barry Beckett and all those great players that are now in the documentary in Muscle Shoals Sound. Hmm. And uh, I kind of just gave up any sense of having any idea what I was doing when I made that first record. And, yeah. you know, um, it was a big learning curve for me to, to figure out, like, it seems like the very early part of my development as a musician in the studio with other musicians was... I kind of gave up all my power and then I got, and then I kind of overcompensated by saying, no, I'm in charge of all the decisions. And I, you know, then I was really probably really difficult to work with for a few <laughs> years. <laughs> I loved the civil wars records. Yeah. And I was going to, uh, just do a record with Charlie Peacock who produced those. And, yeah. um, and we were working on that and then his schedule changed and he said, you know, my son, Sam is really talented. You might want to just take him to lunch and just see if that might work for you because 
he knows all my tricks. And so yeah. I did. And his son is about the same age as my son, uh, who just turned 37. And I just felt like that first meeting with him, I just thought, I got this gut feeling. Uh, and it would have been his first, you know, producing a whole record on another artist kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it was for both of us, it was kind of like, okay, we're going to do this thing. And it was very nerve wracking for me <laughs> and probably for him. But when yeah. he came over to my house after work, working on the tracks for a couple of months without me being there, uh, we were both like, I'm so nervous. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but once we got into him playing me everything, I really loved what he did. So that yeah. was like, phew. Yeah. And now I'm really happy. Now I'm, I think I'll never, never uh, do it any other way. Now I hmm. will always have somebody else produce me because I didn't work very hard at all. I just <laughs> yeah, sang my song like Diana Ross and left the building. You know. <laughs> well, one of the standout tracks on the album is "Epitaph for Love," which is representative of what I kind of consider one of your trademarks, which is kind of the ability to write pop songs for adults oh that's um, wonderful you know never heard it put that way but that that's that feels that feels right <laughs> i mean they're great songs they're amazingly constructed you know but they're you're also writing in a way that that resonates with with meaning i mean it's obvious that you want to say something with your songs you want your songs to kind of you know bear the marks of of real life caught inside a jar Epitaph of Love in particular, and and just in a larger sense, kind of your approach to embracing depth in pop lyricism. It's the actually the longest it's ever taken me to write a song. It is the mm. number one position of how long does it take Beth to write a song? <laughs> 18 years from the time wow. I started wow. working on it. I actually raised an entire child in the time, uh, <laughs> in less time than, than it took me to finish that song. I actually listen for what the song is trying to tell me it is. It's not me trying to make a song. It's the song trying to make me hear it. And mm. and I and I often will, you know, this is not unusual, but I'll pick up the guitar and make a sound like, and there'll be these nonsense syllables that don't make, mean anything that I will put, you know, I'll have the recorder going and I'll record that and I will have no idea what the song's about. And then, you know, if you fast forward to the end of the time when I'm done writing the song, the vowels will match with those mm. first inklings of melody, trying out melody things. Yeah. So my feeling is the song's already perfectly written. And and we just download it in layers. At least some of us do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So with Epitaph for Love, I had this verse and this kind of thing, a couple of verses, and I loved it, but I didn't think it made any sense. I, you know, it was like talking about, uh, you know, I, I was sure my life was over once with a backward glance. I, I watched all my dreams dissolve and fall apart like this moment in time where I just where everything crumbled and I'm like when was that you know like I hadn't I've had a lot of things happen to me but I didn't know what that related to yeah and I kept trying to move it out of the way and try to write something else and so anyway long many many hours notebooks like Leonard Cohen level of <laughs> notebooks written trying to get to what that song was yeah I had like 12 different versions of it a year and a half ago I'm going through a rough patch with my my sweet husband Bob so we were even going to uh, counseling to see if we could fix him, but <laughs> just kidding. Um, we were even going to counseling and we had this really bad day and he comes in the kitchen and 
he says, you know, I think I should just move out. And, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks that he would even, that would even be in, in the realm of possibility. Like mm-hmm. I was nowhere near let somebody's moving out. I was just like, we were in there, you know, working through it. Yeah. So I was so shocked and I was just taken aback. And I, and I, I just remember the minute he said that my mind popped over to that song and my little wheels started turning. I was thinking, I wonder now that song was about being abandoned by your partner like as if they're just gonna leave and all of a sudden i'm like working i'm going through yeah. the, and i'm trying to have this conversation with yeah, my right. husband trying not to let him see that what i really wanted to say was can you just hold that thought i'll be right back <laughs> right. because i was just like oh and so anyway i i did finish our conversation we're still together everything's great but the minute i had a chance i went back to my studio and the whole thing fell into place like wow. the lines that that were in line with that what that was just jumped up and lit themselves up in front of me and I got rid of all the other lines and within yeah. about 20 minutes it was finished. Actually, it's my favorite one on the album. Yeah, yeah. So great. I'm glad you picked it out. The songs are funny because on one hand that song was very patient to wait for you 18 years. Yeah, for to Marina to get but my shit very together. rude <laughs> yes, to show up in the exactly. middle of that conversation exactly. and say, now, now. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's a relationship that I have with creative flow. Everything creative to me is a, is a dance with this other energy source there's mm-hmm. an it's an energy source you could call it god you could call it creative flow call it whatever you want but it is not in your head it mm-hmm. is absolutely in addition to what's in your head mm-hmm. and it works with what's in your head it works with your wow. intellect it's creative flow man it's like building forests it's birthing babies it's doing a lot of stuff it's making mold it's doing everything yeah. you know it mm-hmm. does not gonna it's not gonna write your whole freaking song for you right? <laughs> right it's gonna give you some clues and then it's gonna go you got this and that's gonna come back later so <laughs> understanding that it's not gonna just mean oh I'm, I'm, once i get the creative flow going i'm gonna be able to write a hit song you know yeah. like, right. no you're gonna get like some clues as to how to get close to possibly <laughs> right <laughs> you do all this other stuff on top of that <laughs> right it's interesting. well we, we do want to dig into your thought process and yeah. and actually to take it all the way back to, to your roots from the moment that you sprang into this mortal coil um, <laughs> Ooh. we understand that you grew up in a military family yes uh, moved around a good bit as a kid in what ways did music give you a sense of stability when you were growing up uh, it gave me a life raft, really. Mm. Stability still wasn't there, but um, <laughs> uh, and I had a very lovely, wonderful family and upbringing in general compared yeah. to many people. Um, but the you know I was always really taking in a lot of information. I think I was very sensitive. And we were living in Germany in like 1968, 67, 68. I was 11 and 12 years old. And my we'd moved around like nine times before that. So living wow. in Germany was just the, the latest place we yeah. lived. On the school field trip, believe it or not, for 12-year-olds, somehow they thought it was a good idea if we went to visit a concentration camp. So wow. that was a huge shock to my whole psyche. It was like yeah. I went to Dachau and I walked through the showers and I looked at the ovens and I saw the pictures of the people and I... It was all of a sudden, it was like somebody ripped off my childhood, ripped it out from under me and said, here's the real world. Here's what's possible. Here's what actually happened. And then I was, uh, you know, instead of playing with my Barbies, I was like, what time is the six o'clock news coming on? You know, like I was, (laughs) okay, I got to I got to check out what's happening now. And of course, what was happening was civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King was getting (laughs) killed, uh, you know, the Vietnam War. All of a sudden I became somebody just like opened up the blinds. Wow. My mom was like, honey. 
don't you want to go out and play? I'm like, yeah. no, be quiet, Mom. Listen, Tom Brokaw is telling <laughs> yes. us about the end of the world. The world's falling apart. <laughs> so right about that time, my dad got a guitar for Father's Day. And mm. it was like a gift. It was like I just, it was something that distracted me. I was already writing little poems and stuff. And I was plunking around on that thing. And I started writing protest songs. And I started getting into Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. And they were all writing protest songs. And I was just right in that wave at the ripe old age of 12 and a half. That's awesome. <laughs> then my dad gets his orders and we were moving. Guess where we were moving? We're moving to Montgomery, Alabama. Wow. And they just shot ground Martin Luther King. Ground zero for the civil rights movement. Yeah, ground zero. <laughs> so I hung onto that guitar like like a like a life vest. And it and still to this day, I use it to get through all sorts of stuff. Do you have a memory of what the actual first song was like that you completed and said, this is a song? Yeah, it was called Will You Tell Me When the War Is Gonna End. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. You really I have heavy all kid. those. I have all those. You mentioned earlier you made your, your first record in Muscle Shoals and of course there's a if you're a music geek like I am, there's a whole mystique about Muscle Shoals and those phenomenal musicians and um, this would have been around nineteen eighty, I guess. Yeah, nineteen seventy nine. Uh, okay. Uh, the, yeah. The kind of in into Christmas. We took a break for Christmas holidays, but right in there. Yeah. And then the record came out in the spring of nineteen eighty. So this was the uh, Muscle Shoals sound studio on the river. Which yes. is the second it was second the Muscle guy. Shoals sound. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So talk about how you wound up having the opportunity you mentioned you know barry beckett produced it i think Capitol records picked that record up and right. so this is sort of this is your emergence into the world of of being yeah. a professional singer songwriter how did you kind of get that opportunity i used to sneak into this bowling alley lounge it was called the kegler's cove <laughs> and uh eddie wolford and tommy beavers and jimbo jones and uh, Kevin Hawley and Bill Hines. These are all great musicians. They were the top of the line. And yeah. and one of the people in the band was also Tommy Shaw. Oh, wow. wow. And they're, they're different configurations over the years, but I used to go sneak in and listen to them, and they were just like it, you know. And then um, Tommy Shaw ended up becoming part of Styx. They, mm -hmm. they came into town. They heard the band. They saw him playing guitar. They said, you want to come and join our band? Wow. So then I get this phone call from Eddie saying, well, do you want to join um, Harmony? It was called Harmony at the time. And I was yeah. like, I can't play guitar like Tommy Shaw, but yeah. And by then I was old enough to drink. Um, not that I did. But, well, actually, I probably did. But anyway, um, it was uh, it was just this amazing opportunity to to be in a and I'd never been in a in a full band with sure. drums. So I did that for like two years, and it was you know great learning curve. And then during that time, uh, this guy Terry Woodford and Mac McAnally came into town and they, then we ended up making a, starting to make a record. Yeah. Um, Barry was doing three records. And so, you know, through that, all that soup, That's he, he heard about me and, yeah. and I just thought, of course I'm making a record. You know, I'm going to be <laughs> Beth Nielsen Chapman. I'm going to be this massive, I'm going to be like Joni Mitchell. And I mean, I had this completely planned out and, and, you know, I made the record and, you know, then it came out and I waited for the phone to ring and it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And I was so shocked. And then disco hit really big time. You know, like yeah. Disco Duck and my record came out in the same week. <laughs> oh, wow. So I went to, into this total emotional collapse of confidence. And mm. for the first time ever, really, I, I thought, maybe I suck. Oh, my God. Maybe I really don't have what it takes. Maybe I shouldn't be writing songs. And so mm. I just stopped. I didn't write songs for four years. Wow. And that was probably the most growth I ever had as a songwriter. Interesting. Because mm. I was just licking my wounds. And right. when I went back to it, it was tough at first. But I was a much better songwriter for that. Yeah. You get knocked back one good time early enough. Right. You can recover. I think it makes you a much better songwriter. Hmm. 
Wow. Well, that may be why in 1986 we see your name show up in the Billboard charts for the first time after that break um, with Pam Tillis' recording of I Thought I'd About Had It With Love, um, wow. which you co-wrote with Milton Brown. And of course, that was the beginning of a long streak of Nashville-based commercial country success. How did you end up relocating to Nashville? I mean, was that kind of in the midst of that break time? or? or... Well, see, during that break time, my hu- my now new husband, Ernest, who we, we got married like in 78. So yeah, so like we'd been married a year when I did my album, or 79. No, so we got married and then I made my album like a month later, I think. So he was watching all this go down <laughs> and I was like, I'm retiring from writing. He was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's good. And then, you know, I had my son, so I had a child and I was all, all my creative energy went into baking mm. bread and making paintings and anything but songwriting, but I still had to make a living. So I was playing uh, downtown mobile at the Riverview Plaza hotel wow. for, did that for a couple of years. And, um, breastfeeding and playing music and making a money and um all at the same time all at the same time all, it, was a, it was an amazing show you would have wanted to see it it's a rock and roll cliche <laughs> <laughs> so um one of those times so there was this period of time where i started to uh, like i was playing my husband just was like starting to put some pressure on me like you really need to start writing again mm. i'm like ah. and then he finally i finally started writing again and I, the first songs were awful. And then I wrote this song called Five Minutes. But I wrote that song because I saw Coal Miner's Daughter. Wow. And that movie made me start writing again. I thought, well, hell, if Loretta Lynn can have five kids climbing all over her and she's right. planting potatoes and she's married to do, I could get off my butt and write some songs, you know. And right. that's what made me start writing again. Wow. So he got on me about this song. He goes, now you're back. Now we're going to send that to Nashville. We're going to move to Nashville. We're going to get you back into the fray. And I'm like, I don't want to be back in the fray. I'm finally enjoying writing songs. Leave me alone. You know, I want to be unknown and raise kids. And I don't want, I don't want all that pain, you know. Hmm. So he was getting really frustrated. So it was on a Tuesday and he, he said, listen, by Friday, if I don't see a postmark that you sent this cassette to Barry Beckett and these people in Mac McAnally and. Uh, I'm going to start smoking again. <laughs> and we had both gone through a that's lot of amazing. trouble to quit smoking. And I was like, "You were, that is not fair. Anyway, so that's a Tuesday. So then Wednesday, I'm playing at the Riverview Plaza six nights a week. And the Beach Boys come in town. Hmm. And one of the Beach Boys, uh, I didn't know it, but he was sitting right in front of me. And I'm looking past him, watching the other Beach Boys going up and down the elevator, thinking, man, maybe I can go over there and meet them. Right. And this guy's sitting right in front of me. Is Bruce Johnson, but I don't know it's Bruce Johnson. Yeah. And he's, he's not going, wearing a flowered shirt. No, at I mean the moment. he doesn't look like it. He yeah. looks like sort of Beach Boy light, you know, compared <laughs> to the other guys. And and I'm like ignoring him. He's sitting right. And he says, "Play another song you wrote. Play another song you wrote." I was like, um, "Yeah, okay, okay." And then he came up to me after I was done, and I'll never forget this. He goes, "Look, I got a couple of things to tell you. One is, and I'm trying to get out of there. You know, right? Uh, one is your speakers are out of phase, and I'm like." I don't even know what phase is. <laughs> I got to go. And he's like, listen, um, you, you just played a hit song, at least one hit song. And I got to tell you, you got to move. You can't be here. You Not with that kind of songwriting. You got to go to either a- a Nashville or LA or New York. You pick, but you got to. Wow. And I'm like, and you are, you know, yeah. 
like okay and he goes all i wrote i write the songs that make the whole world sing and, I, and i'm suddenly i'm looking at him i'm going um this kind of looks a little familiar <laughs> and I, he goes i'm bruce johnson i'm like holy crap you know so immediately i go home i wake up my husband and i pour 20 dollar bills on his head like all three of them and um i said we're moving to nashville i was so excited and he was it, he was kind of irritated with me <laughs> he was like, i've been telling you this for weeks right he said, but he told me it's a number one hit and he goes i told you it's a number one hit so i get to nashville everybody's fighting over this song wow. five minutes everybody's fighting over it like i've got two or three major publishers you know one guy offering me 10 grand just for that one song wow which in 1984 is sure. a, yeah. a fortune so i signed with mtm first day i'm in nashville i'm unpacking boxes the person i signed with is the daughter of loretta lynn's best friend going over to the to the ranch to play it for her in her kitchen. No. This does not get any better, no. right? So right. I'm like already counting my money. I got that old <laughs> familiar feeling I'm back and everything's yep. going to be great, which is not a good place to be because usually that's right when I start to notice that it's not working out that way. Right. And and the and Meredith calls me from Loretta Lynn's kitchen and says Mer uh, she loved the song, but you know, she's kind of got something like that cuz she is Loretta Lynn. Hello. <laughs> right, right. She's got lots of songs and I was in such shock that she didn't cut it. So it took mm. 5 more years. You just have to keep going because yeah. you, and you can't give up on the songs if it's a great song, it'll rise to the to the time when it's supposed to be heard. And yeah. it was uh, Lori Morgan's first number yeah. one hit. In 1988, you had your first number one hit when Tanya Tucker topped the charts with Strong Enough to Bend, a song that you wrote with Don Schlitz, who's yep. written a million songs, but of course, probably best known for writing The Gambler. did kind of embracing the Nashville style of co-writing, you know, coming into this whole community where there's, it's got its own culture and its own approach. How did kind of getting involved in that um, impact your personal approach to tapping into your creative energies? Great question, because I, I had written almost everything by myself. Uh, to, to work with another person is a very strange experience if you've never done it. So by the time I got to Nashville, I'd been writing with Bill and Radney, uh, Radney Foster and Bill Lloyd. And, right. And, um, you know, it was the classic thing where I went out to hear Don Schlitz and the Bluebird in the round when that yeah. was really mm -hmm. just for starting to happen for the first time. Yeah. And I'd met him casually, and he invited me to s sit in and sing a song, which was a major step forward in the, you know, in the food chain of being in Nashville right. to be invited into the round. Mm. Um, and after I finished the song, he was very lovely. He said, why don't we get together and write? And I was like, Yay! <laughs> Went over to Don's uh, and and with Don Schlitz, I mean, he was just whip smart and super fast. Like yeah. we wrote "Strong Enough to Bend" and another song between nine o'clock and eleven thirty. And wow. we went to lunch, and I sat there going, 
what just happened? <laughs> and I couldn't even know if they were done. Much I couldn't even remember how they went. They, right. It happened so fast. And he showed me that I, you know, here I was. The first song I was talking about took me 18 years. <laughs> and we wrote that in 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I found out that creativity does not have to take 18 years. Mm. And you can just t- take the bull by the horns and go with your, you know, he was very instinctual. Like, go with your first instinct. And he's um, like, hang, hang on for dear life if you're writing with Don Schlitz. <laughs> and, and I've written with so many different kinds of writers that what I've found is that it's a completely new, it's like a fingerprint. It's absolutely yeah. different every time, sure. which makes it intoxicating. And it's easy to get caught up in it, especially if you're living in Nashville. Yeah. You got to be careful not to, you have to book time with yourself. In fact, this new record, Hearts of Glass, I was going to only do songs I wrote 100% by myself, and I ended up with like two on there because I just love the songs and I wanted yeah. to do them. But, um, but the, you know, it's a different muscle, totally right. different muscle yeah. to co-write. Yeah. Well, and, and even, you know, you were talking about the different kinds of co-writes and the fingerprint, and, and yeah. you are an artist and have been an artist, but then you find yourself writing for other artists, you yes. know, and, and after that first Tanya Tucker hits, you know, you, you had a, a top five hit with Highway 101, um, the song All the Reasons Why, and you wrote yeah. that with Paulette Carson, uh, yeah. who was the lead singer of the group. But but the things in you that kind of uh, more of kind of like you're you're a lead dog you're the artist you're the one yeah and when you're in the room with the artist kind of subjugating that yeah yeah because you want the cut but yeah. I'm a real I'm like a song Nazi you know I really right. the song has to win out so I've written with some pretty prominent uh, artists that are also writers and the song starts to be this m- massive song that I I'm just thinking way beyond us. Yeah. You know, I like to write songs that are going to outlive me. You know, that's sure. what, I'm always like dig, going for that. And if I'm writing with an artist, well, I'm not sure I want to say that word. I'm like, well, <laughs> the song is what we're talking about here. Right. And the song, <laughs> this is the best right. word for the song. So I can get kind of edgy around that. However, you're absolutely right. When you're writing for an artist, musically, it has to fit. Mm. So, you know, when I've written, when I wrote with Paulette, she had some phrasing things she did differently. And I felt like, oh, the phrasing should be this. But she was going to phrase it because she's the artist. And right. I had to let that go. I had to go, well, if I ever cut that song, I'll phrase it slightly differently. Right. Um, and and it's absolutely her right, you know. And, and mm. she did a beautiful record on it. Uh, you know, I think it's, again, you have to defer to the artist. But I will never defer to the artist at the expense of the song. Like, if mm-hmm. it's going to be a weaker song because they wanted to put some lame line in it. I'm, I, I've fought tooth and nail. like, right. And I've like... You know, now now that I got inducted into the Hall of Fame, I have this really cool hand with the quill. It's like a bronze hand. It's my award, right? And it's right there. Like, so if anybody gives me any trouble, I just pick it up and I hand it. If I go talk to the hand, <laughs> but no, I fight. I fight for what I think is the best song, no yeah. matter what. Well, you didn't really have to worry about that with uh, two hits that Willie Nelson had of yours, 1989 oh, and 1990. Oh, no. <laughs> you wrote those by yourself. Uh, I did. Nothing I can do about it now, and ain't necessarily so. Um, those are your first charting singles that were written solo. They're also significant because they were Willie's last number one country and his last uh, top 20 country hit, respectively. Is that right? 
Yeah. yeah. Well, he's certainly been busy doing cool things ever since. And I did <laughs> yeah. not realize that. Well, I should just have him. I should write him another one then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he needs another number yeah, one. Re- just remind him how good that experience Something was. Something tells and... me he's transcended concerning himself with whether or not he's number one. <laughs> what, uh, I mean, what's it like to hear uh, an iconic voice that you already are so familiar with then sing your material, much less something that you wrote by yourself? Well, I was, first of all, I have to thank Fred Foster. So he calls me up one day. Fred was producing a record on Willie. And he goes, Willie Nelson is uh, going through a lot of stuff right now. And he's not writing. And uh, we have an album due. And um, <laughs> he likes that song, Strong Enough to Bend. It's on the radio like crazy right now that you wrote. And, of course, you know, I wrote it with Don Schlitz, but I didn't offer that. I also wrote that with Don Schlitz. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said, yes, yes. He goes, well, he wants you to write him something. And I'm like. Okay, like what? Did he really say that? And he goes, "Yeah, he he needs you to write him a song." I'm like, "Willie Nelson needs me to write him a song." Wow. Okay, I'm Amazing. totally stepping up to the plate. And then I turned into this other person for three months. I literally woke up every day and said, "I'm gonna write a Willie Nelson song." So I wrote five songs. Wow. And he co- he cut three of them. He cut five altogether, but um, he there were two or three that he cut on the on the horse called music album. Uh, one of which is called If My World Didn't Have You, which is I did a remake of that for this Hearts of Glass album, um, the new record. But mm. the other one, Nothing I Can Do About It Now, just about killed me. I literally spent more hours trying to write that song. I knew it was a hit. Mm. But unfortunately, I got the title first, which I never do. Mm. I usually get that last. <laughs> mm. So I had this title, and it was Now. And it was like, there aren't that many things that rhyme with now, and I needed rhymes for each line. It was really, really hard work. Do you need to have perfect rhymes? Uh, if like... I can, you know, I try to, yeah. I mean, I fudge when I feel like there's no choice. Right. But I'll wait 15 years for the right word. <laughs> yeah. So I was waiting, but I was running out of time. I literally got in my car and drove to the airport at 6 o'clock in the morning with a bathroom slippers with bunnies on them and greasy hair and a robe and my cassette to hand it to Fred Foster, who was getting on the plane to go play songs oh for Willie. Gosh. I'm like, here it is, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like down to the wire. But I was really happy with what I did. I've got a wild and restless spirit. I held my price through every deal. I've seen the fire of a woman scorn turn her heart of gold to steel. I've got the song of the voice inside me. So this this whole period that we're talking about in the late 1980s and early 1990s was really kind of a transitional period for country music. Um, Garth Brooks's first album came out in 1989, which kind of marked the beginning of this explosion of of new country you know the sea change um and looking at the artists who were having hits with your songs in that era is an interesting snapshot of kind of of an overlap of one era that was kind of coming to an end and another era that was starting you know you have pam tillis and highway 101 who kind of represent this new wave but you also have tanya tucker and willie nelson who were legacy acts that were kind of coming to the close of their most successful commercial period on the country charts. Um, and that trend continued when Laurie Morgan, who was, you know, kind of from the new school, hit number one with Five Minutes, which right. was a song you you referenced earlier. But 
that same year, Don Williams from the old school uh, had a hit with Maybe That's All It Takes. And then soon after that, you have Alabama, which kind of straddles both of those worlds, had a big hit with Here We Are, which he wrote with Vince Gill, who represented kind of this this sea change. Um, so it's interesting to me to kind of look at your who was cutting your songs in that period, because it really is this very stark uh, kind of overlap of one era kind of coming to a close and, a, and another era opening. In what ways did that shift in Nashville and the, the Nashville music business impact you as a songwriter who was really just coming into your own as a, as a real hit maker? You know, I just listening to what you just described, have never thought about all that. I mean, I've never thought about that. It's very interesting um, perspective because I, I never was aware I was any kind of glue across two, two sides of, you know, but when you're describing that, I'm thinking about all the different ways in my life that I've had this pattern where I will have a friend who's from this camp, a friend who's from that camp, and they would not want to hang out with each other, but (laughs) I end up becoming really close friends with them. And then there's this kind of weird bridge that gets built and there's some gluey stuff that happens. And it happens over and over in my life. And I think it's because I'm very open to not putting anything in a box. So Hmm. even as Willie's cutting this and Lori's cutting that, I never thought of one of them as old school and one, I just thought of them as artists, but, but you're right. I mean, there was this, this sort of this wave ending and a wave beginning. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I was kind of surfing across the top of both of those waves. And I, (laughs) I just had never, I've never realized that. Hmm. So, uh, for me, I was trying during that time, so desperately trying to be heard as an artist myself. Right. I, I was still kind of feeling the, the, the sting of having the world reject me. Of course it didn't, it just never knew I existed. But <laughs> to me, I, I, I went out on a major label on Capitol records. I said, here I am and here's my songs and nothing happened. And so it was like a big rejection and I was trying to get someone to sign me as an artist. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, there's two hat. There's these different hats that I wear. And when I'm writing strong enough to bend, I'm pretending like I'm Loretta Lynn or Laurie Morgan, or, you know, I feel like I'm char- in character of a country singer, and yeah. I love that character. But that's not really that. I couldn't limit my artist self to that and just do that thing and nothing else. Yeah. So I knew that I was gonna have to be able to experiment and do all kinds of. I wanted to be, you know, more like in the Sean Colvin, um, uh, who had Luca, um, Suzanne, Luca. Suzanne Vega, Suzanne Vega. Yeah. Yeah. They were all happening. Yeah. I saw myself like alongside of those guys, right? That also happened to be writing country hits, sort of on the other in the other room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was very confusing for me not to be signed as an artist right away. Because but looking back on it, I think I was just letting people know, well, I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. And they're like, well, you don't want to cut your song strong enough to bend. That's a hit. You don't want to cut five minutes as an artist. Um, so what would you be doing? And I'm like, well, I'd be doing it. And I'd show them the songs that would end up then on my album with Warner Brothers, which is my first album yeah. in 10 years that, bear, that, um, that Jim Ed Norman, he heard me uh, as, a, as an artist that was more like a pop artist or mm-hmm. you know a singer songwriter pop artist yeah and so it was kind of a curious weird thing going on for me as an artist i think that took up most of my psyche 
Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really thinking about all that cool stuff you just said five hours ago <laughs> when you asked that question. <laughs> you know, I was interested when you were talking about that first, that self-titled album, and you were talking about the kind of balance of writing for other artists and sort of putting on that costume sometimes and mm-hmm. going to do your own thing. Are, are there any of those costumes that have sort of stayed with you? When, when, when you put on your Loretta Lynn or you put on your Willie Nelson, when you, when you look at a, an album like Hearts of Glass, you know, your most recent project, do you see any of those things that have lingered in your own persona as a writer? Absolutely. I mean, to me, I've, I've reached a point where, for instance, like um, Old Church Hymns and Nursery Rhymes on the new record mm-hmm. is a song I wrote for Waylon Jennings. And I hear myself in the performance on the album and when I play it live, I hear myself channeling a little bit of Waylon because I wrote mm. it for him like blow on you restless wind but I don't lose my center of who I am mm-hmm. in doing that it's not a caricature right I actually do a couple of lines really fully Waylon when mm-hmm. I do it live because and people know exactly fun, can, yeah. you can hear it right away but it's just a nod to him you know yeah. like splintered wood and rusty chains you know and I just <laughs> right. like well damn it you know <laughs> and uh I I um but I I feel very centered now as a singer and as an artist. Mm. 2014 I put an al- out an album called Uncovered. Mm. And it's basically me playing all the songs that I wrote that were hits for other people. But um but it's it's never outside of my center, mm. I think as a as an mm. artist. Um you know, I look at an artist like uh Trisha Yearwood who recorded a couple of your songs on her 1992 album Hearts and Armor. Um, Say You Will, which is one that you wrote with Verlin Thompson that had been actually recorded by Holly Dunn, I think, before Trish Yearwood cut oh, wow. it. Um, you know stuff I don't even remember. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. But on that same record, she did Down on My Knees, which both those songs were, were hit singles um, for her. And, and Down on My Knees was one I think you had recorded on one of your own projects before that you you said you kind of have these personas these hats that you wear here's an example of a a song that you wrote kind of with an artist in mind and a song that you wrote from your own project Mm -hmm. coming together on one project by one artist right um have you been surprised by the ways that some of your songs have been embraced by others maybe things that you thought were just kind of like well that was just a for me song but oh you know, this artist resonated with it or whatever. Does does it surprise you once you kind of let those songs out into the wild, the ways that people choose to kind of interact with them? Well, I always write for the song. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I'm writing the song for Willie as an assignment, asked me specifically from the professional side, will you write this for Willie? Yeah. I'm, I, once I get a bead on the song, once, once I smell the end of that song, when, once I get the oh, this is what this is. I'm like a dog with a bone, and I'm, I, will, I will throw Willie and um, Barbara Streisand both under the bus to, if I don't have a co-writer to fight to the finish, I'm just going to follow that song. There have been some really interesting covers and stuff of my songs. With Down on My Knees, an interesting story about that song is like, I didn't even know that Trisha Yearwood was a singer. Hmm. She was the receptionist at, huh. at uh, MTM Music for a little while. Oh, well. I would waltz past Trisha, lovely girl. Hello, Trisha. Any messages, you know? Yeah. I had no idea. But I was writing down on my knees on the other side of the wall in the writer's room. Wow. She was hearing that before when I was just wow. plunking away on That's it before it was even born. Wow. And I remember, and this is before I got signed, um, yeah. and she was in development, and I think Garth Fundus was getting ready to cut, cut with her. 
I was still not signed even. I mean, I, I hadn't really sealed my deal and I was, you know, he, Garth calls me and says, listen, I, I know you're playing at the Bluebird tonight. So I'm going to bring out this artist that I'm cutting a record on. She's amazing. Wait till you hear her sing, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I'm like, oh, cool. You know? So, and he says, and she really likes this song, uh, down on my knees. And I'm like, how would she even know that song? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, before it came out, you yeah. know, it was like, I didn't, I didn't even connect the dots of who right, it was. And she, right. she came in sat and came in there with Garth. I'm like, oh, hey, Trisha, what are you doing here? <laughs> and it was really weird. I was both, I was thrilled for her and I was yeah. extremely jealous and upset that she was going to get to put a record out. Like, Why does anybody want me? But I thought it was just always so cool that she she was hearing the inklings of that song yeah. before it was even written. I, you know, uh, that's actually something interesting about what you were saying before about you know following the song and following the truth of the song, which can seem like a really um, sort of like localized chase. But yeah. that's sort of the path to being universal, really. It is, is. If, if you chase the truth in the song, yeah. that's how you end up with Roberta Flack. Kathy Matea and the Indigo Girls all recording a song like There's Still My Joy. I mean, that, yeah. because that's from Roberta Flack to the Indigo Girls, there's quite a bit of, of yeah. space in between. The yeah, styles and one of there. my favorite things, you know, I, it was either Waylon or Willie who said this. Um, basically, my favorite quote about songs is a great song, don't care who sings it. <laughs> <laughs> like that. It, it'll fit because, it, again, we, we really only have a, a limited amount of basic human emotions. And if you tell your story and you dig deeply into your own story and, like, give us details, you know. Mm. Your fourth album, Sand and Water, your husband passed away, um, you know, before that album came out. And obviously that was a very significant period in your life. Yeah. Um, and that record you had had several hits on the adult contemporary charts from your first two records that you did with with warners and yep. um sand and water the the title track was yet another ac hit um for you all alone I came into this world all alone i will someday die Solid stone is just sand and water, baby. Sand and water, and a million years gone by. Also, a song that Elton John embraced and and was performing live in that era, which is amazing. Yeah, um, amazing. Totally. But you know, that's a, a song and a, and an album that emerged out of a time of, of personal loss. Um, in what ways did just going through that and kind of dealing with that hard stuff impact your personality as a songwriter? Well, it was, you know, life just was like a roller coaster ride. Um, I was actually just finishing my second album and um, everything was lining up. My husband had quit his job because we were, he was going to become full time Mr. Mom and we were just gearing up for this big thing to finally happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, he hadn't been feeling well and he had some tests and that led to other tests. And then they, they said, you know, we, we can't believe this, but you have a very advanced case of a very rare form of lymphoma. It was 83% in his bone marrow. It was like, mm. they, they said, you know, you should just get your affairs in order. You probably have about six weeks to live. Wow. And we were totally shocked, you know. And I had been writing these songs 
for about six months. Hmm. And I would play songs for Ernest. Um, we'd have a little Grand Marnier and, you know, set up, and I'd play me stuff you're working on. And then there was this one song called Seven Shades of Blue. Well, it wasn't called that at the time. I just had had this, you know, verse and chorus of this song. And he called it my Bob Dylan song. And he was just like, this is your best song ever. Who's it about? It sounds like somebody's going to die. I mean, we had these conversations well, prior to him ever being diagnosed. Hmm. So there were there was this a sense of, I didn't have any sense of foreboding. I just thought these songs are, I don't know what they're about yet kind of thing. Um, looking back, it's all clear. You know, they were, they were coming in before this ever even happened. And um, so he lived almost two years and it was magical, intense, overwhelming, incredibly sad, incredibly um, surreal and also uh, transcendent. And mm. I, the transcendence of that time has carried on with me through my whole life. Yeah. And part of it is the, the fact that some of those songs were written slightly before their time. Right. Um, I was starting to see my songwriting as this m sort of almost a spiritual connection like I'd never had before, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but, you know, there's an amazing thing about crea creating stuff and and I think it's it's something that um, it, it's it's really it's like oxygen. It's there for, for anybody to tap into. Hmm. And I just had this weird way of tapping into it ahead of time. That is wow. wild. Yeah. 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 And 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 going forward, I mean, it happened again with a album called Deeper Still, which came out after Sand and Water. Mm -hmm. And that Deeper Still record, I was finishing it up when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, and the whole record sounded like I wrote it after I went through breast cancer. Wow. So wow. Now wow. people go like, what are you writing now? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> totally. to think about you haven't written anything about me, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody does. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel like, you know, the, the tra trajectory of the story is kind of from the valley to the mountain, to the valley, to the mountain, yeah. you know, and you talk about a valley there and there was another mountain coming though, um, with Faith Hill. A, a God, massive yes. number mean, one hit crazy amazing. with this yeah. kiss. I mean, that song uh, gave her her first top ten pop hit, earned you CMA and ASCAP Song of the Year awards, your first Grammy nomination. just like this incredible wind in my sails mm. you know in the midst of coming coming through that um and 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 putting out sand and water was amazing too it was like the whole period of time as i got my strength back and kind of moved forward life just went boom you know yeah. unfolded in such a big way um and faith did faith and um byron gallimore uh who produced the record did such a great job on that record and i got to sing background vocals on it nice. i wrote that with annie roboff and robin lerner the three of us together wrote okay. that song um with faith in mind uh no here's the thing you know we wrote that in 96 they kind of had something started and annie had all that cool stuff you know like centrifugal and i was like mm. man that's a hit song and so they let me in on it <laughs> <laughs> And I remember, you know, when, when we were writing it, you know, just thinking, this is such a hit, you know. So we thought it was a pop record. Mm. We totally demoed it thinking Patti LaBelle mm. and Brandy or something like that, you yeah. know. And so then we, we kind of played it for, we kind of did a different mix of it and played it for Reba and, you know, the Judds and everybody heard it. Everybody, nobody grabbed it. 
And then Annie came up to me and she said, listen, I just heard that Faith Hill's cutting. She'd just come off a nice sized hit. Um, we went back in the studio and we put it to guitars. So that was, you know, a good example of like, make sure your, your song is in the right form, like in the right, yep. you know, like demo it a few different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause I think it, it made a beautiful country song, but I, I still think of it as a pop song. It's got way too many chords to be a country song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so much fun to see how well it did. You know, it, it helped put my son through college. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm a nice perk. For. Yeah. <laughs> Um, on that same year, Martina McBride had a big hit with Happy Girl, um, yeah. which was a song that was actually on the Sand and Water uh, album yeah. before it was uh, a big hit for her. Um, and soon after that, um, you had a number one hit on the adult contemporary chart with Jim Brickman and Rebecca Lynn Howard's duet of, of Simple Things. Right. You know, I mean, so you, you really look at like, you know, from from the mid to late 80s, you know, to the, the early 2000s, there's this huge streak of, of hits for, for other artists. And then you, you're, you're making your own records, you're pursuing your own artist thing, which, as we've talked about, was a very kind of different yeah. vibe than, you know, the stuff that maybe folks are hearing on, on country radio. Um, and now you seem to be much more focused kind of on your own projects your own artist career and country music has has changed a lot too i mean you sort of have the rise of bro country and all that stuff which i think we're on the back side of that wave now but we but hope those <laughs> you know those just aren't those aren't the type of artists that are gonna sink their teeth into I'm a beth nielsen chapman song you know I'm, what i mean i'm threatening to go back and and, uh, and reimplant myself and see if i can change the vibe <laughs> right yeah save us, save us i didn't really abdicate i didn't abdicate at all i've always um you know i just follow songs you yeah. know and i follow my deep desire to do something from an artistic standpoint that has sometimes led me way over here and way over there i mean i yeah. did a an album of Latin hymns that I um, did just as a gift to my parents, my Catholic yeah. parents, you know. And then while I was doing the Catholic hymns, I was thinking, you know, I really feel like the reason I'm drawn to those old Catholic hymns isn't so much about the words as it is the vibration of the tone. Then I started getting interested in tonal um, music that's tonally, the similarity to that in a Buddhist chant and a mm. Hindu chant and a Jewish, um, you know, song that, that's leaning into looking for connection with spirit. Mm -hmm. So I did a whole double album called Prism, which took 10 years to finish, really. Yeah. And I, in, in the process, I, I mean, I had the most amazing experiences. The thing that's so cool about, um, about your career and, and your stories is just sort of Faith Hill, number one country, top 10 pop hit, which is, you know... The, as commercial as it gets and then you're like and then i decided i'm gonna make it spend 10 years making an album <laughs> of that ties together the world's religious music you know but i think the thing that's so admirable and cool obviously about i'm it, not doing it for money <laughs> <laughs> but you'll but probably get a number one out of it but some that's why that's why you've had the success you've had because you've obviously made a commitment to the songs and some are going to be obvious popular type of songs and some are going to be i'm doing this for me and it's offbeat I'm and doing it's it interesting all you know yeah, and, you know I'll give you, I'll but give it's you. <laughs> it's just it's it's very um inspiring and and uh 
admirable and with with your new record hearts of glass there's obviously no sign of uh no sign of, of getting tired that. or slowing down <laughs> i mean you're just doing your thing and it's and it's really uh an inspiration for us so thank you so much for oh, coming it's by been today my pleasure. you awesome. did your homework too I, i've learned things about me i didn't even know <laughs> that's what we try to do thanks as always for listening and for your support We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I don't want another heartbreak. I don't need another turn to cry.